Good morning. Thank you, Chris. And really, thank you for all you've done this week to get us ready to uh, bring us to this worship service. There is so many moving parts to our Zoom services. And uh, really, thank you to all those who are participating this morning. Uh, I think that we've all, most of us, have probably been in a situation where maybe you've showed up on test day and you really hope that there was something that's not going to be on the test because there's probably something that you know you didn't study very well and you're really hoping that it doesn't show up uh, as one of the questions. I've had that experience. My guess is most of us have. Uh, for me, actually, it's related exactly to the topic of these two scripture texts. And it's the, the topic for the, the big 50 cent word, eschatology. Now, if we were all together at DeProct, I, I would go around the room and try to get a, a really good definition of, of, of who could define eschatology or eschaton for us. Um, it is that study in theology of all those end time things, last time, last events, final events of history, the ultimate destiny of humanity. It's um, the end of the world, if you would. And eschaton is that, that final event of the divine plan and the end of the world. Well, when I went in for my test and was a little afraid of this, it was actually my, my ordination interview. And of the, all the topics that I really hoped that nobody asked me about, it re related to this issue. Um, those of you who have studied this, who maybe studied the book of Revelation and Daniel and and you're really, there's some people who just really get interested in this topic. I'm not one of them. It's really, it's really not my thing. Um, uh, I can land on a really simple platform uh, as far as this goes. And, and it's an old Boy Scout motto. Uh, I was never a scout myself, but uh, back in 1908, the, the founding member of the Boy Scouts wrote, be prepared. That was it. That's their motto, right? Be prepared. And, and he defined that by saying you're always in a state of readiness in mind and body to do your duty. And I love that. To me, I sum up all my theology of eschatology in this, this really simple two-word phrase of be ready. Be ready. Last week, I know that Francis uh, led us through uh, uh, the text and and it, uh, uh, short uh, sermon that all about being rooted. This morning, we're going to talk about being ready. When I uh, moved up to uh, Alaska, I spent many years out in Western Alaska, uh, living among the Yupik and Inupak Eskimo people. And there was a great phrase uh, uh, that one of the, uh, somebody who had come through doing photojournalism, he wrote a book. In fact, you can check it out on Amazon after the message, uh, after the service. Uh, it was called Always Getting Ready, and he's talking about the Native people of this region, how there was always a season of getting ready. It was not ever a time to just stop and be, or uh, to stop and, and, and enjoy life, because there was always something ready. When you are living a subsistence lifestyle, you are always living hand to mouth, and, and so you always had to be getting ready. So there was always a season that involved uh, gathering bird eggs or, or going bear hunting or, or time to go catch the moose or caribou or ducks and geese, salmon fishing, beaver, red fox, or, or uh, otter trapping. Maybe it was berry picking season. There was even a season 
to go pick the, the grass for grass basket weaving. Um, there, there was a season for everything and the people were always getting ready. And I love that metaphor. I love that idea of always getting ready, being prepared, always doing something to put ourselves in a position to be better prepared. Now, our text. And perhaps this is not normally the way that uh, you have uh, somebody who, who comes and addresses uh, the sermon very often. But um, when I read this text, um, I don't really like it that much. I, I actually approached it with a little bit of like, okay, I guess that's the text for this, this Sunday. Um, it, it's never been one of my favorites. I, I perhaps have never really uh, understood it that thoroughly or that fully. And uh, I, I think that I, I like to be a very linear guy. I like to be able to see, okay, this is exactly where it's going and just follow the, the, the plan or the path all the way through. And, and I really can't do that with this, this particular text. But I have had a bit of a change of heart um, before you tune off and go down to leave the meeting right now. Um, I, I had a, a little bit of a change of heart and, and I, I feel like um, I've grown in my understanding. But why? Why didn't I like it? Um, there's, a few cons- there's a few questions that really hit me right off. Why do the bridesmaids have to bring their own light to the wedding reception? Um, why are the wise bridesmaids so stingy and mean? I mean, don't they seem a little bit like mean girls? Why doesn't the groom show up for his own wedding until like midnight? Why does the bride, whoever she is, put up with such a ridiculous delay? And where even is this bride, by the way? Where is she? And why, after keeping his poor bridesmaids waiting for hours, does the groom blame them for lateness and shut the door in their faces? Maybe you can see why I didn't really like the text that much. But there there are some some of these questions that, that honestly still bother me a little bit. They prevent me from, from fully... Um, being able to just give you a sermon that kind of wraps this whole thing up in a, in a pretty bow. I can't do that. I'm not going to do that for us this morning. Instead, what I can do, I think, is, is try to gather some of the pieces that have been scattered um, and, and examine them in turn. Or to switch metaphors, maybe to take the parable and and turn it around and around and around as you would a, a precious stone that you're evaluating and you see it from different angles and it looks differently from the different angle that you look at it. And, and I think that's more in line with what we're going to do this morning. Um, I don't pretend that any of my various discoveries um, are cohesive or, uh, or, or won't be in contradiction with one another. They might be. But that's exactly what happens when you, when you evaluate a precious stone from, from different angles. It's going to look differently. And maybe, just maybe, that's kind of what we're supposed to do with some of Jesus' parables. Maybe we're supposed to let their meanings just open out to us wider and wider and wider still. Maybe the truths of the parable that are reveal are various and, and infinite, impossible to lock down. In any case, here we go. The bluff is be ready. You probably figured that out already. Be ready. And and I'm going to give you a little more of, um, because of looking at it from the the different angles, it it might even feel a little bit more like a a shotgun approach. 
than a rifle approach. And right, you're thinking, leave it to the American to use a gun analogy in the beginning of the sermon, right? But um, if, if you're not familiar with weapons, uh, a rifle shoots just boom, one bullet, and it just it's going to go straight towards that moose and hopefully hit it right in the heart, and you're going to be eating uh, a good supper. That's that's a rifle approach. A shotgun approach is when something's on the move, like a, a flock of geese, and and it's it's one bullet still, but it's got lots of little shot in it, it's little pellets almost, and 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 as you shoot it, it, it it's going to scatter. And I love to preach like a rifle, but I think this one's going to feel a little bit more like a shotgun approach this morning. So to counteract that, I'm going to give some uh, trail markers along the way. This is uh, when we would travel from village to village out in Alaska, we often would put out, uh, uh, there's trail markers along the path, along the journey, on the trail, so that uh, used to be, of course, dogs team, but now it's usually snow machines or snowmobiles that we would use to go between villages. I'm going to be very intentional about marking the trail uh, for us this morning. So trail marker number one, and again, if you're the note-taking type, this is exactly for you, okay? Trail marker number one, there is going to be a wedding someday. I mean, really, there is. Here's a potentially uncomfortable question. When was the last time that you actually heard a sermon about the second coming of Jesus? Do you even remember? When was the last time you thought to yourself, oh my goodness, what if it was today? What if today is the day when God's kingdom comes in all of its fullness and our broken earth is restored and made whole, just like the scripture promises? I mean, truth is, many of us have grown accustomed to the bridegroom's absence. Accustomed and maybe indifferent. His absence and delay are our norm, so much so that deep in the secret places of our hearts, we may no longer believe that he's really going to return. We may no longer believe there's going to be a wedding. After all, isn't that sci-fi children's story, parting the clouds kind of almost a little bit embarrassing to the world? Won't people think that we're delusional to take it seriously? Maybe, but the problem of letting go of the eschaton, of the, the plan of final things, the final plan of all things. The problem with that's twofold. One, we have to make Jesus out to be a liar in order to do it. Jesus said that he will return. So just as surely as he said he would be crucified, buried, and resurrected on the third day, on what grounds should we choose to disbelieve a stated promise of our risen Christ? And number two, the coming of God's kingdom and all of its healing and justice-making fullness is the yardstick against which we must measure all of our own healing and justice-making efforts. The wedding feast is our ideal. It is our goal. It is our destination. Without it, we have no standard, no accountability, nothing to lean into, nothing to work towards, nothing to anticipate as we labor in God's name. We cannot let go of the eschaton. The parable of the bridesmaids ends with a wedding. It ends with celebration and joy. And we dare not abandon this glorious ending simply because we've grown tired of the waiting. So number one, trail marker one, there is going to be a wedding. Trail marker two, it's not going to go the way you think it's going to go. Sorry, I just really don't think that any one of us uh, 
has it all figured out and and, and how this is going to come. I mean, Jesus's first coming certainly was not the way that anybody anticipated his arrival to be, right? Why would we think that the second coming would be any different? In the parable, the bridesmaid have to wait so long for the groom's arrival. They fall asleep. Surely they don't want the party to begin at midnight. I mean, most people don't look forward to a party that starts at midnight. It's not their choice or their desire to wait, but the five bridesmaids who carry the extra oil in their flask, well, they've prepared themselves for the long haul just in case. They consider and they take seriously the possibility of surprise, of delay, of, of hardships, of unpredictability. They don't allow their preconceived ideas about the groom or the party to distract them from what actually is right in front of them. They remain open and adaptable to the circumstances that they find themselves in. Yeah, they fall asleep as well, but they fall asleep ready. Are we? Are we ready for the long haul? Do we have the flexibility to handle the unexpected? Or are we clinging to a rigid, narrow notions of what God's presence looks like, such as such so that we miss God when he actually shows up? Can we bear an unpredictable bridegroom? A bridegroom who surprises us. If Jesus' notion of time, faithfulness, fulfillment, and celebration look different than what we're expecting, will we still follow him into the wedding hall? Or will we just bail on him? There's a book that has helped me in my journey of, of uh, ministry, uh, especially ministry in uh, contexts that maybe uh, stretch me and, and pull me. Uh, Leslie Newbigin. Gospel in a Pluralist Society. Trust there's probably some of you who have read this. Uh, this really meant a lot to me. Uh, Leslie Newbigin was a, a missionary in India for many, many years. And uh, this book brought me out of some traditional views of, of maybe who's in and who's out of the wedding party. We're going to talk about that a little more in a little bit too. But it prepared me way in advance for what I would encounter uh, as I came into military chaplaincy. There's a, a little phrase in the chaplaincy world that we call, um, that, that, that actually, when I first heard it, it just, it rung true in me. It just, it kind of hit me like a laser. Uh, it was chaplain to all and pastor to some. And I love that idea, that no matter what somebody's faith background would be, no matter what it is they believe, they could even be one of the nuns, which is the fastest growing religion in America, uh, the nuns, not N-U-N, but N-O-N-E, none. What's your religious preference? None. Uh, I can be your chaplain. I, I can still serve you. I can still work alongside you. I can still encourage you and support you and, and, and help you to be more ready. But if you actually happen to be a Christian, uh, specifically, uh, you know, a Protestant, uh, even an evangelical Christian, then Perhaps I can even have more of a pastoral relationship with, with some of the, the airmen that I work with. That meant so much to me. Chaplain to all, pastor to some. And Leslie's book helped me see uh, through some of that. Trail marker number two. Be prepared for things not to go the way you think they're going to go. Number three. Sometimes doors close. Do what is necessary now. Now, personally, 
I don't like that the five, I don't like the fact that the five foolish bridesmaids in the parable arrive too late to gain entrance into the wedding. I don't like the fact that the groom closes his doors. I don't like the fact that the story leaves five women out in the cold. But whether I like these things or not, this is the story. This is what happened. Windows close. Chances fade. Time runs out. And we know this. We experience it regularly. The opportunity to mend the friendship, forgive the debt, break the habit, write the check, heal the wound, confront the injustice, embrace the church, release the bitterness. Those opportunities close down. The opportunity ends. And we hate this. Of course we do. So we tell ourselves, or we try to deceive ourselves, that it isn't true. We tell ourselves, oh, you know, there's always tomorrow. Uh, we'll get to it, uh, whatever it is, eventually. But there's still time left. We kind of take on that motto of why do today what can be put off until tomorrow. But what if, what if there isn't a tomorrow? What if the parable is telling us to be alert now, awake now, active now? What if we're always supposed to be getting ready? What if it's inviting us to live as if each day, singular and fleeting, is all we have? Tomorrow, if it comes, will be its own gift, its own miracle, its own challenge. Don't presume that it belongs to you. Do what is holy and necessary now. Through my early years of college, I worked as a orderly at a hospital. And uh, one of the very unfortunate tasks that I had as an orderly was to work with um, bringing bodies to and from the morgue, um, passing them to the, the funeral caretaker when he came and so forth. And um, one day we had a motor vehicle accident. There was two uh, DOAs uh, dead on arrival. And one of those was a 19 year old boy. And so as I received this body from the uh, ambulance crew, brought him to the morgue, and I had to prepare the body. I had to get him ready because his parents were coming in and wanted to see their son, their child. So the nursing supervisor and myself walked down to the morgue with this family. And as we stood there, this dad stood over his son and he wept and he bawled. And he kept saying over and over, I love you, son. I love you, son. I love you, son. And he couldn't stop. He wouldn't stop. And we weren't going to stop him. And I'm not making judgment on this dad. I don't know whether he said this previously or if perhaps this was the first time that he was saying this to his boy. But all I could think of at that moment was we have to do what is important now. We, we have those kinds of words to say we need to be using them now. We need to be using them often. The opportunity to mend the friendship, forgive the debt, break the habit, write the check, heal the wound, confront the injustice, embrace the church, release the bitterness. Those are the opportunities 
that shut down the opportunities to say, I love you to somebody who's really special and important to you. Those are the kinds of opportunities that we may not have forever. Take advantage of today. Sometimes doors close, do what is necessary now. Number four, you are more valuable than your oil supply. So stick around. As far as I can tell, the fatal mistake of the five foolish bridesmaids is that they, they leave. They assume that their oil supply is more important to the groom than their presence at his party. So they ditch the scene at its most crucial moment. They go shopping, thus depriving themselves of a wonderful celebration and depriving the bridegroom of their companionship, their support, and their love on this very special day. Now, this is a point that I want to press into a little bit because I totally get the foolish bridesmaids in this narrative. I get how hard it is to stick around when my light is fading and my reserves are low. I get what it's like to scramble for perfection, to insist on having my ducks in a row before I show up before God or the church or the world. After all, it's scary. It's vulnerable. Lingering in the dark and my pitiful little lamp is flickering. My once robust faith may be evaporating and my measly leaky flask, well, it's filled with nothing more than doubt and pain, and grief and weariness. Only a bridesmaid who trusts in the groom's deep and unconditional compassion. Only a bridesmaid who knows that the groom has light and oil to spare. Only a bridesmaid who understands that her presence, messy and as imperfect as it might be, only that kind of a bridesmaid who recognizes that she has intrinsic value to the groom is going to stick around. Will have the honesty and the courage to stay. The bridesmaids in the parable lack this sort of comprehension and this courage. So five of them, they scatter. They, I, I believe that the wedding procession suffers as a result. Now, quick historical context note. So, and I had to look some of this up because I didn't, part of why I didn't really like the text so much is I didn't understand it, right? So how it works is the groom uh, has a party and, and, and as they make a procession to the event, right? So the groom picks up the wedding party. They go to the bride's house. She joins the party and, and together they go to the groom's home where they enter. They have this big wedding and the celebration, the party starts. Now, however, because of the choice of these five, there's going to be five fewer lights to brighten the groom's path on the way to the bride's house. Five fewer voices to cry out with joy at his arrival. Five fewer friends to dance and sing the night away in honor of the groom and his beloved bride. The loss, it's communal, it's extensive, and it's real. This is not a situation to celebrate or endorse. It's a situation to grieve. Perhaps the lesson of this parable is don't allow your fear, your sense of inadequacy to keep you away from the party. Be willing to show up just as you are. Complicated, disheveled, messy, real, and authentic. The groom delights in you, not in a lamp. 
Your light doesn't have to dazzle. Remember, God created light. He is light. Jesus is the light of the world. Your half-empty flask of oil isn't the point. You are. So stay. Trail marker number four. You are more valuable than your oil supply. So stick around and be ready. Finally, number five, the last one. Scarcity isn't a thing in God's kingdom. So we need to quit hoarding. Ironically enough, the wise bridesmaids in Jesus' parable distrust the sufficiency, the generosity, and the love of the bridegroom as much as the foolish bridesmaids do. Operating on the basis of scarcity and fear, they refuse to share their oil. Smug in their own preparedness and wisdom, they forget all about mercy and empathy, kinship and hospitality. They forget that the point of a wedding celebration is celebration, gathering, communing, joining, sharing. It doesn't occur to them that their stinginess has consequences. It sends their five companions stumbling into the midnight darkness. It also diminishes the wedding, depriving the bridal couple of the remaining five guests, their lively, their companions. Now, I'm not sure what it will take for us Christians to live fully into the abundance of God, but it's clear that our assumptions about scarcity, I think, are killing us. We're so afraid of emptiness that we worship excess. We're so worried about opening the doors too wide, we prefer to shut them tight. We're so obsessed with our own rightness before God that we forget that rightness, divorced from love, is always wrong. We live in dread and there won't be enough, that there won't be enough to spare. Enough grace, enough freedom, enough forgiveness, enough mercy. Somehow we would rather shove people into the dark than to give up the illusion of our own brightness. For those of you who have studied business stuff, we, we play a zero-sum game all the time in, an, in a kingdom that's supposed to be all about abundance. What would it like, look like to stop? To stop all of the excess? What would it look like to care more about the emptiness of our neighbor's flask than the brimming fullness of our own? What would it be like to care deeply enough about the readiness of our neighbor that it truly costs something to us that we hold dear. I want you to recall with me a, a scene that pretty sure most of us saw about five years ago. It was a picture of a three-year-old Syrian refugee boy whose body had washed up on the sandy shore in Turkey after the rubber boat that was carrying him and his family. But they had hoped, of course, to be new lives in Greece after the boat capsized. In the picture of a lifeless boy laying in the sand and a Turkish soldier picking him up and bringing him up to shore. Until that photo appeared in September of 2015, people didn't even seem focused on the humanitarian crisis in Syria. But Aylan Kurdi's photo, the boy's name, mobilized empathy and concern soon bringing in record donations to charitable organizations all around the world to aid victims. I know some of you remember the 1972 photo 
of a nine-year-old Vietnamese girl fleeing the napalm attack upon her village. Why does it take photos of such atrocities to motivate us to action? We read the news, we read the paper, we sit with our phones and we flip through the news stories, we see what's going on, but we fail to act until something grips us, until something gets a hold of our heart. What could our world be like if we would be ready to respond to the needs of others around us without the need for such extremes? Trail marker number five, scarcity isn't a thing in God's kingdom or a part of our readiness. We need to quit hoarding and be generous. Now, I shared this at the very start of the message. These are all interpretive possibilities, right? For Jesus' parable and the bridesmaids. Surely, there's plenty of other ones as well. Other angles, other nuggets or, or of teachings or insight. Other angles we could look at this thing with from. Other questions to ask and challenges to ponder. But I want to ask you right now, which ones speak to you? Where do you see yourself? In this story, where do you see Jesus maybe looking at you? In my encouragement for you, spend some time this week to locate yourself in this story and locate him too. The doors are open. The wedding hall is full of Jesus's holy light. And this is the place to begin. This is the place, Jesus is the place to be rooted. This is the place to seriously consider our own preparedness for Christ's return. This is the place to be ready, to always be getting ready. Church, we cannot be lulled to sleep by the delay of the Savior's return. For in truth, he's here. He's with us every day where two or three are gathered. I am there in your midst, we read. We know it's true. The mystery of faith that, that we proclaim every time we receive the Eucharist has this great text of past, present, and future tense. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. The risen Christ is with you today. Embrace him. Root yourself in him and lean into him for your readiness. For the day of Christ will come again. Amen. Amen.